When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? We're uh, amassing a, a large amount of Rock Hall inductees into our podcast. This is nice. I like talking to Rock Hall members. Glenn Matlock of the Sex Pistols. Not just of the Sex Pistols. Of Glenn Matlock and the Philistines. Of the International Swingers. And he's touring with Blondie. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about the Sex Pistols. We'll talk a little bit about Blondie. And we're going to talk a lot about... Glenn Matlock's new solo record, which is called Consequences Coming, a totally appropriate name for this record. And you will find outtakes from this interview with Glenn on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and also on our social media at WDDIM Podcast. So check it out. It's very exciting to get into the virtual studios with Glenn. So let's do that right now on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. I could have met you face to face. I'm in West I, Hollywood. Oh, I was so hoping we could have done that. I like that too. And oh. you're staying there. You're staying for a while. Are you staying through? Oh yeah. What happened is I'm touring with Blondie, and we had some shows, and we went to Mexico and Colombia, which was very interesting. And then we're doing Coachella, so it wasn't worth going back to England. So I'm doing that, and then I got a show of my own after all the Blondie shenanigans, which I'm off to rehearse with the guys. A little bit later on, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's been kind of good. I'm sort of an Englishman abroad at the moment, and with what's going on in England with our politics, is it's not only there, but in quite a few places, but it's kind of good to be out of the country, I think. You know, take a sidestep. Not, not being funny, but if you was in my country, you might kind of remark upon the politics that are going on, but it wouldn't really be your problem, and I would allow you that. And hopefully it's the other way round too. You know, you can see what's going on, but it doesn't affect you as deeply as it does if it's your own country. So, yeah, there you go. That's true, and that's a good point. So we're happy to give you a little bit of a mental break. All right, thank you. <laughs> but you did say it was interesting in Colombia. Well, I'd never been there before. I didn't know what to expect and got it. It's funny, Bogota or Bogota, however you pronounce it, it sort of struck me as a cross between Madrid and Los Angeles. It was funny that we was going down, we had a bit of a sightseeing day, went downtown to the, this place, the Gold Museum, where they got all Aztec kind of artefacts and things, but there was a big march going on, the students were going on. We had to take a big detour, and a guy drove us around in the hills, and it was like driving along Mulholland or something. <laughs> so it was, I didn't expect that. People were great. I thought it was going to be all hairy. The only thing was, was that our tour manager, bless her, is lovely, looking after our best interests. She was a bit worried about it's kind of dodgy there, which maybe it can be at night, but if you get from London, if you go to Tottenham, it can be dodgy at night. <laughs> but I kept thinking out, there was a kind of a Colombian kind of Whole Foods place with a little cafe a couple of blocks away, and I, and I realised I was being followed, and I got really um, 
a bit uptight about being followed, but it was actually I was being followed by one of Blondie's security people that I hadn't told me. <laughs> in the end, I kept sort of hiding behind a tree. We had a laugh in the end, but um, <laughs> they have a lot invested in you, I guess, right? They have. I suppose so. Yeah, it was in Mexico City as well. Yeah, which was kind of cool. The um, we was doing a festival and. Crowds are crazy in Mexico City, right? They're just so enthusiastic. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The, the, the Blondie crowd, we we played in Mexico last year, and um, the Blondie crowd, they sing every word to every song mm. all the way through in perfect English. Maybe a bit of a ha-ha-ha <laughs> going on. <laughs> but, yeah, it's kind of cool. I like it. But in, in this time in Mexico City, was, um, the Black Crows were there and the Red Hot Chili Peppers as well, which was kind of cool. So nice to see some like-minded rock and rollers. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so another Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band that you're in. You're a, a voting member of the Rock Hall, right? I'm a member, but I'm beginning to run out of people to vote for, to be honest. <laughs> I, I have this long conversation with Clem Burke, who comes and stays with me in London sometimes, and I stay with him over here, although not this time, but... Um, you know, and he saw my voting slip on the side, and it's we both say, "Why on earth don't they put the New York Dolls in? They were so important, and they never get get in there." And it, even just to shut up guys like us, you know, I don't think you'd have had all those hair bands for what it's worth. It weren't for the Dolls. You certainly wouldn't have had punk if it wasn't for the Dolls. Important, you know. And then you put Dolly Parton in; it's fantastic. But she's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, she is now, but mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of weird. So, as a voting member. It's actually the board that puts the nominees up. You have no say in the nominees? Not really, no. I think maybe if I was sort of cultivated a bit more of a, um, you know, in in the inner sanctum, maybe I could do, but I live in London, so I don't really do that. It's just what appears on this little brochure you get every year. With a tear-off, if you must know, there's a tear-off slip at the back, and you've got to pick no more than five people, you know, five acts, and then you put it in an envelope and send it back. But because I've been busy this year, I've, I had a quick look. There was nothing I really, not too much I really wanted to big up. And I, I kind of probably won't vote this year because I've, I've missed the boat. So abstain, okay. Well, what I thought was I'd bring it with me. Not abstaining, I just didn't get it together. I thought I'd bring the brochure with the voting slip with me and post it from, and I forgot to pack it. <laughs> well, so. we can cast a fan vote on your uh, behalf. Well, can you? All right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you, no, you don't want it. She'll, she'll vote for everyone that you wouldn't vote for. Who, who would you vote for that I wouldn't vote for? I'd vote for Cheryl Crow. Oh, I like Cheryl Crow. Mind you, a big hit. Sun, sun comes up on Santa Monica Boulevard. And I'll fly a, a Steelers Will song stuck in the middle with you, the guitar part. I would say it's what we call in the trade a nick. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you nicked some songs, didn't you? Yeah, but the thing is, is, is <laughs> when I do it, it's a homage, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, good to know. It's a it's a fine line, yeah. right? Yeah. It's also spelt differently, right? Yeah, it's homage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you vote for? Well, this time around, well, I'd vote for the New York Dolls. <laughs> oh, so what was it about the New York Dolls? I mean, they were just, they were, I mean, there's not many things that are kind of a sea change in music. But they were. I was actually very fortunate. I was a big fan of a band called The Faces, who were in the, the Hall of Fame, for what it's worth. But I went to see them when I was about 15. No idea who was supporting, but determined to get my money's worth for the ticket. 
what I paid for. And the New York Dolls, when it was the original band with Billy Mercer on drums, not about a couple of weeks before he died. So I kind of feel privileged to see them. They were so exciting. And that was when I was beginning to get 15 and a half, 16. We're meeting the guys from the Pistols. We hadn't really started playing then, but it, quite a few things came together in my life, my, my musical life then, and they were one of the things that were instrumental to that. But I was quite privileged over the years. I became, became pretty friendly by those guys, and particularly Sylvain. I did a couple of East Coast American double-header tours with him, and it was great. They're just little clubs. We was driving up and down the eastern seaboard, me and him, me driving him, navigating, but he always left his glasses in the back of the car, which wasn't very helpful. But we'd hitch a ride on a kind of gospel station, and there was this one with some guy, I think they call him Dreavers. Ah, I don't know. <gasps> and then they play all this fantastic music. It was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of years back, we got to interview Dylan Jones, who wrote about the Blitz Kids. Were you a Blitz Kid? Did you consider yourself a Blitz Kid? I was a bit, I'm a bit too old to be a Blitz Kid, although I did go down there. And the guy who started the whole Blitz thing was a guy called Rusty Egan, who was the drummer in my band, The Rich Kids. It's kind of funny, there, there was a um, thing on just over Christmas, like a documentary about the Blitz Kids scene. And one of the running commentaries is how Spandau Ballet were getting it together to do a gig. But by the time they finally get it together and do a gig, they've had clips of me and other bands. And I've been in three bands by the time. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite a good scene, you know, and lots of people did quite well on the spin-off from that. And all these people in London, they all kind of know each other, you know, if you're on a certain standard. Gary Camp, from, um, who was a Blitzkid guy, he actually played with my band, The Rich Kids. He stood in for the guitarist, Steve New, who passed away. And maybe my band, The Rich Kids, was like a bridgehead between punk and the whole new mindset thing, because... Rusty and Mijur did a side project with a guy called Steve Strange, which became Visage, and it kind of took off. It kind of broke the band up, really, but um, there you go. What will be, will be. I don't really have you guys down as Blitz kid types, but maybe you were. Well, it was because we got to talk to Dylan Jones, and so that's kind of been our Bible lately. Whenever we talked, we got to talk to Gary Kemp and a few others, so we're starting to uh, get kind of a, a nice education about that scene. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it was important. You know, it was important for a lot of music that came out, you know, and it gave Bowie a whole different take on things, I think. You know, he had lots of those people in his Ashes to Ashes video. But about a year and a half ago, I went to see a movie which I'd never heard before, a black-and-white French movie called Kiet Vu Poly Magoo, right? Which is a French kind of, It's about the most French movie I've ever seen, and it's about a Amer supposedly American supermodel in Paris in the 60s who's called Polly Magoo. Who are you, Polly Magoo? And she gets followed around by a team of TV press to find out who the real Polly Magoo is. You've got to see this movie. I, I'm writing it down. <laughs> The visual is fantastic, and there's loads of stuff in it that Bowie nicked for the Ashes to Ashes video. It's like a Mickey take of the the fashion world and what was going on. So, yeah, check that one out. Here, Vu, Polly Magoo. I think Dave will be on that one tonight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. You got, I got a homework assignment. I guess the other scene was also was your the school you went to. Apparently, uh, everyone went to your college. Yeah, my art college, St. Martin's Art College. I'm just quite well renowned in the fashion world. I didn't do fashion there. I did foundation course and was going to do painting, but it was right in the middle of Soho. You know, I was 17 years old by that time, and you kind of walk out to go and buy a pencil when you were stuck for an idea, and you see people like Lucy and Freud and 
Francis Bacon waiting to go into the colony room to have a drink when the pubs used to shut in the afternoons. I felt I was part of the scene, and that's kind of where I met, not the guys from the Pistols, but other people. I had a man, uh, there was a guy, he was in a band called Bazooka Joe, Daniel Kleiman, who, if you watch all the latest James Bond movies, he does all the graphics for them. And then that Danny Boyle Pistols thing that's coming up, there's a little connection there, because my son got a gig in the movie and he plays Danny Kleiman who the Pistols supported on their first gig so it's all kind of interlaced. <laughs> Speaking of your son this band obviously he gets your legacy was he destined to be a musician? Um I don't know I always say the apple doesn't fall far <laughs> from the tree everything he's done and he's done quite well actually um, he's done off of his own back so I kind of respect him for that but he was over here last year he was on the bill, but quite high up on the bill on a big tour with... I always get confused, either Limp Biscuit or Linkin Park. I think it was Limp Biscuit, the band that did rolling, rolling, rolling. You know, the the homage to theme <laughs> tune for Rawhide. The, the little sub did um, Madison Square Garden and playing. And I've only ever managed to walk past it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's a good for him. Yeah. <laughs> so good, good for him. So good, say that sincerely. Yeah, I don't Good for him. No, we want our kids to do better than we've done. No, 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 no. We want them to do as well as. Okay. Yeah, it's always a competition. Well. It's, a, it's a competition. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That says a lot. Yeah. Competition keeps both sides of the generational divide on their toes. Yeah, crisscrossing across the country, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Although I think he's touring in Europe at the moment. So. Yeah, he's over there. You're over here. Nice. I wanted to go back to fashion because I'm fascinated with the shop sex and everything that went on there. That was almost like a, a like a club to go to. You had to be seen there. You had to wear that fashion. What attracted you to go there and, and work there? It just, there was just something about it when I walked through the doors. I mean, originally it was a teddy boy shop, but, but the te- whole teddy boy. You know what a teddy boy is? Teddy boys wore these long coats, like draped coats. The name Teddy Boy comes from the Edwardian look in between the wars that the aristocracy used to wear with, like, velvet collars on their jackets and slightly long coats, like draped jackets, they were called. And then the working classes picked up on it. Then that coincided with Bill Ailey coming over and all that. The guy, the most American guy who looks... Like an English teddy boy was is Kim Fowley when he plays like the head thug in um, American Graffiti. You know that bit where there's a car outside Mel's and they put chains underneath the back of the car in a police car. Right. You know, yeah. but the guy behind all that, or he makes the kind of the little guy do it. He's dressed as an English teddy boy. So there you go. And he, so Malcolm sold that kind of stuff, but it was the antithesis of long hair and flares of what was going on. And there was just a scene there, and people start, I got a job there, and people started coming in there, and that's where I met Malcolm McLaren. Well, Malcolm run it, where I met Stephen Paul from the Pistols, and later on John came in. But it was like the epicenter for every oddball weirdo and somebody who wanted to go on and do something on a Saturday afternoon in London. At the time, you didn't really think that back. But looking back, that's what it was. You know, Billy Idol came in and Susie from the Banshees and Marco Peroni ended up and had him in the end. So, again, that coupled with the art school kind of thing 
Don't know other things going on. It was quite a good breeding ground for ideas, really. Talking it up with Rock Hall inductee Glenn Matlock. But the time has come to take a break, and we shall do that right now. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Glenn Matlock. I am off to rehearsal a bit later on. You know, we've got this gig at the Roxy coming up at the end of the month, so I'm rehearsing for that this afternoon with Clam, a guy called Steve Hishman and Gilby Clark, who's graciously said he'd play lead guitar for me. You've got quite an all-star roster. Are these friends of friends? Or, and how do you assemble a band for this, this well, project? Well, I'm sorry, with Clam. I've been mates with Clam for... I don't know, 40 odd years or more. And Steve Fisherman, his mates with Clem, and I played, we played together before. I've never played with Gilbert before, but what happened was, is it occurred that because I got a new record out, maybe I could put a show in, which I did, and I asked Clem if we could get, and he suggested Gilby. And we've had a couple of rehearsals, and it sounded good. So, yeah, I'm quite excited about that. We've even managed to get Clem's ass Fred Armisen to get up and do a little spot, so he's going to appear as well. Oh, he's opening up? Is he the opening act? He's going to be the sort of kind of host and do something. We'll we'll get there. We'll find out, you know. And nice Kathy Valentine, too. Kathy's going to get up and do something with us, get into that stage. And I met Kathy last year when I was on tour with Blondie and Clem's big friends with her. And Yeah, everybody seems to know each other and rub along quite well. So, yeah, we're all coming from the same place, sort of, musically and kind of artistically. I don't know if there's that, that much art involved, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's great. What was the impetus for starting to write new material for this record? Well, there's been a lot going on in England. I've always got a song on the go, and it's like what you're going to sing about, but there's been so much going on. You know, we've had this ridiculous thing called Brexit in England, and we've got a particularly pernicious right-wing government who brazenly corrupts. And it's in your face all the time. 
and it's a kind of a way to get it off my chest. You put a song out there and people identify with it, it becomes a bit of a rallying call. So that's kind of what I've done, you know. The album, you don't release an album because you recorded it the day before and wrote all the songs the day before that. It's, it's a bit of a gestation period. And there was lockdown for the best part of two years in the way of getting it out. So it's been a long, slow process. And I thought I missed my moment, but I was in New York to do a session with Clem. I was going uptown on the Monday to publicise my album. That's what I was doing at Rockefeller Plaza, struggling to get a cab. But while I was going up there to pub help publicise my album, Consequences Coming, meanwhile, coming down Fifth Avenue from Trump Tower was Trump oh. going downtown to get a rain. So maybe I haven't missed a moment. <laughs> <laughs> you could write a whole new album here while you're here. <laughs> well, maybe I will. See, the thing with many writes songs, you see things, you don't necessarily write them all down and that, but... You kind of soak up things almost by osmosis. And when you do go back and write things, you think, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that. Oh, that happened, didn't it? So it kind of qualifies your thinking somehow. Percolates. Yeah. So did you actually start writing when Brexit became a thing? It's been going on for a long time, you know, all the talk about it and the vote for it. And I've always got a tune on the go, whether it's a fully-fledged song at that stage, you don't know. And you sort of pick up little snippets of ideas and a word here or a title there. And it all starts adding up. And then you, you, you start writing a song. Then you got to kind of think what you're going on about, you know. So you have a whole period of trying to qualify what the thought is and the, the message you want to get across. I mean, you know, I'm not a staunch revolutionary or communist, certainly not. But there's certain things that are wrong, and I think it's our duty to try and call them out. Is that where Head on a Stick came from? You might think that, and you'd be right. I just got too much on my mind Oh yeah, I gotta get this out there Feel like the witness to a crime So many minds out on vacation I'll plead in ignorance in this place Sure got ourselves a situation You know, I think people who um, try and hoodwink people, our politicians, I think they should be held to account and to pay for it somehow. So figuratively speaking, yes, I would like to see the heads on sticks. In the Middle Ages in England, if the ne'er-do-wells got caught, you would see their heads on sticks outside the Tower of London. Hmm, there you go. don't know if I particularly want that. It's probably a bit kind of... But um, you know what I mean. <laughs> I actually thought I'd like to know that that was happening, but like back in the day when, you know, there were hangings and there were crowds watching. I don't know that I get out there and watch it, but I like to know it's happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of like that, but I can never quite understand why people were big on horror movies all the time. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, it's not really for me. Well, for now, we got a picture of a, a former 
head of state in a courthouse staring blankly at the camera. Like that's a shot that's going to last forever. Yeah, I, I think so. No, and the same in England with Boris Johnson as well. He's he's come right and unstuck. So yeah, consequences <laughs> seem to be coming. I see a little light at the end of the tunnel where people are maybe wising up to what's going on. Yeah. So the name of the record, Consequences Coming, did it come to you before or after you'd written all the songs? There's actually a, a title track. There's a song called Consequences Coming. So, um, and that's going to be the next single. It's coming out at the end of the month. Yeah, the other alternative title was SOS, which <laughs> SOS stands for. Same old sugar, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> Same old Okay. You can say it, it's a podcast. Uh, no, I like, I like to people, get people's imagination. <laughs> were you on the Bill Gundy show? I, uh, you were there. The one who swore his head off, that was Steve Jones. Yeah. You look pretty composed. Ish. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to be my affable, not kowtowing to the guy who was interviewing us, but Steve Jones in the green room beforehand found a bottle of Blue Nun wine, <laughs> drunk most of it to himself, and it just happened to kick in halfway through the interview, so all hell broke loose. Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. Susie, she was just being, like, coy with him. And he said, oh, maybe we'll meet after. We'll meet after, shall we? <laughs> you dirty son, you dirty old man. Steve completely understood that he was talking to a drunk, as you would a drunk in a pub, and he just topped him. It's not big or clever, but it was funny. Uh, I mean, we're still watching it today. That's insane. <laughs> like that. Who'd have thought, you know, who'd have thunk it? But, yeah. Did you feel bad for him after? Not really, no. no. Yeah, yeah, he deserved it. He picked on the wrong blokes, basically. But I think that he lost his job, but I think there'd been a load of other stuff going on at the time, which wasn't anything to do with us. So it, we were the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And in the background, there was Susie Sue was there. What? Why was everyone there in that situation? Well, do you know what? When I walked in the studio and saw him there, I didn't know they was going to be there. We nearly never did that interview thing because we was rehearsing for the Anakins here and we wasn't going to do it and it only came about last minute because um, Queen pulled out. Freddie Mercury had a bad toothache and we just signed to EMI so they got us to stand in but we nearly didn't go because we was busy rehearsing and we only went after about three phone calls because Malcolm said that if you don't go you might get your wages this week. So <laughs> it was all a bit kind of happenstance. Walked in the studio and there's Susie, he wasn't even in band there, she's part of this thing that's become known as the Bromley Contingent, and I've nothing against her, but I thought we was doing it, but I think Malcolm wanted it to look more like we was part of a scene, which is kind of fair enough, really, in retrospect. Yeah, and, and that was that. The yeah, funny thing was, everybody moans about Steve swearing, but nobody really moans about Bill Grundy trying to chat oh. Susie, you know, <laughs> live on TV. I could see Malcolm, the other side of the cameras, it was a very small studio, and he went white when Steve swore. Oh, okay. <laughs> good. That's good to know. Oh, you've done it now, he said, when the thing was pulled, you know, was pulled short, the interview. And then when we left, the guys are going out, and I went off a different direction. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm trying to see if there's any more beer in the green room. He said, no, come on, let's go. And then we got in the car that was waiting for us, and as we drove off, 
the police turned up in a we call them a black Mariah, you might call it a paddy wagon or something like that and they went running out into the tv thing so we waved at them but they didn't realize it was us and we drove off into the night <laughs> it was like the keystone cops really funny <laughs> As I was at a show last week, and there was a little bit of a moshing around, I was, and I, it made me think of, like, did moshing start with the Sex Pistols? Did you see any of that? When did that type of thing happen? There was stuff going on. I think it had been going on before, though, in different kind of gigs, although just before punk, it wasn't really called moshing. There would all be sort of hippie type. They were known as idiot dancers. There was lots of heavy <laughs> idiot dancing going on. And in fact, in England... There was a guy, if he went to the Redden Festival or something like that, there was a guy who had sort of long hair and a funny little thing there, and he was always dancing, and he was known as Jesus for some reason. And in <laughs> fact, when I come out of Malcolm, this was funny, I come out of Malcolm's when I was working there, and there was a bus coming that, you know, if you didn't get that bus, you had a long wait. So I run for the bus, and I run past Jesus, this, this guy, Jesus, on the King's Road, and he started stripping off his shirt and... You know, just had his bare top and he's waving it around, cheering me on. He's obviously very excitable to catch his bus, and I caught the bus and got on the bus. Everybody looked at me as though, is this guy with you? And then the bus didn't go because they stopped to change drivers, and I was sitting there like an idiot. For <laughs> We're going to find footage of Jesus on YouTube. I think he probably will, actually. He's, he's quite <laughs> known. And then if he wasn't dancing, somebody shout out, what is Jesus at the gig? And then he'd start to get up and start this is a guy at all the shows but yeah kind of big ones yeah yeah that's right everyone i mean because everyone brags that they were at the first sex pistol show and uh, i guess it might as well have been jesus as well at that show maybe yeah i saw him at the reading festival and i saw humble pie with grand funk railroad in high park so i went to see some queen show with mountain mclaren in high park and there he was doing his thing Jesus. Maybe he will be a Coachella. We'll <laughs> no, he, he sadly passed away, actually, and there was quite an outpouring of sympathy oh. online for him maybe a year or two ago. What was the first song you wrote? Well, do you know what? I think one of the very earliest songs I wrote was Pretty Vacant, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, is it with you and Steve Jones about who wrote which songs? And, you know, you're credited with all of the songs on the, on, on well, it was, it was decided that it would go four ways. I don't know if I'm totally happy about that, but that's the way it went. And I get credited on stuff that Steve come up with and Steve gets credited on stuff what I came up with. And, you know, I didn't write all, all of them, although Pretty Bacon's my song, but, you know, like Anarchy and God Save the Queen, they were mainly my musical ideas and John's lyrics and then Steve wrote stuff like No Feelings and Lazy Sod 
So it was never collaborative. It was it was just you bring your songs. Well, I, I, a couple of the songs came from jam sessions. Did they have a little bit of place like Problems and yeah, maybe Liar came from a, a, a jam session thing. Amazing. Yeah, the music bits and then John wrote some words, which we never really knew what he was going on about because we couldn't hear him. <laughs> <laughs> he well, what, was there someone that was pretty vacant, or what was who? Who was this? What did you write about? Who was the person? Well, well, I, I wrote that song because Malcolm had been going backwards and forwards to New York and had told us there was this scene over there. Now the the, the bands that were coming through, like the early Heartbreakers and television and maybe the Ramones were beginning to go down but they hadn't made any records so we had no idea what they sounded like and Malcolm brought back this kind of list of songs that he pinned up on the wall in his shop he would put like postcards from people up and things and there was a list of songs and the first song was open brackets in the arms of closed brackets and then Venus de Milo or Milo which I thought was a bit weird because I was at art school at that time and I know the statue of Venus de Milo has got by David has got no arms because they've fallen off. So I thought that was kind of a weird idea. And then the next song on this list was Blank Generation. And that kind of got me thinking, and what was going on in England and London was it's pretty much akin to what's going on now. You know, there did seem this air of if you don't grab the ball by the arms and do something for yourself, you're going to come unstuck. So it gave me the pretty vacant idea but I hadn't heard any of their music then so that was kind of quite a good cultural kind of um, little spark to give you an idea you know such a different time now you can hear everything you know what everybody's doing all the time you have access to it but to not know what's going on in another cultural you know these bands that are breaking new ground and not knowing so you're doing your thing they're doing their thing so I think we I think with the pistols maybe those other bands at the time, you had a chance to do your homework and kind of hone what you was going on about and your act or, act or your music or your art, a little bit of everything, really. And now people just put up the idea that they've just had and if it's a good one, that's cool, but if it's a bit, little bit half-baked, which a lot of them are, you don't get that breathing space. When we did get our break, I suppose, post or well, the day after the Bill Grundy show, we were ready to go, but we'd every, already knocked everything into shape, I feel. Was there a jukebox at Sex? Did, was this Vivian Westwood? There was a jukebox after a while. Originally, there was a radiogram. Do you know what a radiogram is? Please explain. A radiogram is a, a record deck and a radio in a nice big piece of furniture with normally a sliding door and space to put your LPs in underneath. And in fact, around the corner in Melrose, there's a, an upmarket kind of Melrose kind of shop with exactly one of those in it, except now it's probably got a, a USB player in it or Bluetooth yeah, right, as well. Right. And it's probably a tidy penny. But the thing with some of those ra- old radiograms, they were made out of good proper wood. You know, none of this MDF nonsense. It was like a bit of mahogany. And the, you get a great sound out of them. The bass comes booming out. Anyway, Malcolm made one of them. It's like a 50s, early 60s kind of thing. And it was a bit like the one we used to have at home. So that, that was kind of cool. And it's probably the first time I heard the Stooges. He had the Stooges album that he, he'd put on that. And then a bit later on, he got a, a jukebox. Who was curating, the, the putting in the, the records or supplying everything? Just whoever brought a record in, really. You know, that was it. Mountain gets stuck. You might pick something up and open up the lid and 
put it on. He, he got a lot of singles on the jukebox. There was a shop called Rock On Records. It had a shop in Camden and another store down the Portobello Road called Ted Carroll. And he's famous in the, you know, that um, song by Tin Lizzy or Thin Lizzy. It's spelt <laughs> that, but it's pronounced Tin Lizzy because they're Irish. The song The Rocker. I get my rackles from the rock on stole. That's about them. You know, I'm a rocker, baby. Mm. But the only thing was when the radiogram went, the jukebox was great, but I only played singles. On the radiogram, Malcolm had this most fantastic jazz album that I've actually re-bought. I think it's one of my best favourite albums. It's called, um, it's the soundtrack for a beatnik movie from the 60s called Les Liaisons Dangereuses. And it's by Art Blake and his Jazz Messengers, and that sounded pretty cool on the radiogram. But you couldn't play that on the jukebox because it was an LP and they don't fit. <laughs> they don't go down that little hole. <laughs> but thinking, and you mentioned the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or we were talking about that earlier on. I went to Cleveland, I don't know, about 20 years ago, and got a guided tour around it. And the best thing I saw was this glorified radiogram, which was about 20 feet long, and it had a TV, and it had lights that lit up, but they were really old. You know, like the coloured bulbs you get in a yeah. fairground? Yeah, Big yeah. Like, yeah. Flashed in a, maybe a four-track tape recorder. And it was Mike Smith from the Dave Clark Fives Radio Home Entertainment Unit. It's about 20 foot long, but he probably gave it to him because he didn't know where to put it anymore. Yeah. It was cool, but the time I went back again, I said to Sylvain, come on, let's go and look at this. And it weren't there. It was probably in storage somewhere. I was, I was quite disappointed. Ah. Some kid's going to inherit it and go, what the hell do I do with this? Yeah. <laughs> well, you probably have to cut it in half and get it in your little... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Defeat the object. Yeah. Did you support the Pistols' decision? When they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they kind of... I, I would have gone. I didn't... I, I thought it was nice. It wasn't the end of the world. It was kind of cool. John wasn't happy about it, and he made a unilateral decision we didn't go. I was up for it. Steve was up for it at the time. I think it's quite, you know, when you do your 10 yards swimming and you get a certificate and then you do 25 yards, it's kind of like that, really. It's good to get a badge sometimes. <laughs> it's not just a participation trophy. It's more than that. Yeah. Anyway, but I, when I did go the second time, they gave me my award, which I got home, and Sylvain presented it to me. But I, and I felt a bit bad because I thought he should have had one. Sure. Mm. Oh, yeah. What is your relationship with Johnny? I haven't seen him since the last gig we did in, um, in Spain in 2008. I'm quite yeah. happy about that. Okay. I, I don't know how long you've been broadcasting, but maybe whatever your first job was, say you worked in an office or something, you don't necessarily keep in touch with Bill in accounts, do you? Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, all a long time ago. But having said that, I'll see Steve while I'm here. I'm still in touch with Paul. You know, birds of a feather flock together. But you know, but I don't wish John any ill at all. And it's quite just sad about his wife passing away. Right, yeah. yeah. I was gonna, do you Laura, who I knew not very well, but, you know, in the music game and your social world there's always people that you've known a little bit for a long long time and um doesn't mean you really know them but right. you have some kind of interaction with them and when you hear of somebody's passed away it's always sad you know vivian passed away uh tell me a little bit about her it was over christmas actually was it yeah, yeah that's right it was recently so tell me a little bit about what made viv so special well, she was a very determined, single-minded, talented lady who kind of knew what she wanted and went for it. I actually went 
to China, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago to do something in Shanghai. I got there in the early hours of the morning and it dawned on me that the airport was quite a long way from town and I thought I'd have a cup of coffee. I thought, oh, that's not bad, I'll have another one. And I was a bit kind of caffeined up, got to the hotel at like 6.30 in the morning and thought, checked in and I thought, oh, actually I'm buzzing from this coffee, I might as well go for a little walk because I won't sleep. And that's what I did. And I thought, oh, I better not get lost. Let's find a landmark. And I looked round outside the hotel, and there, in Shanghai, was a Vivian Westwood flagship store. And I never expected that at all. But it was like, wow, right from the early days when I worked for them, and it was like kind of hand-to-mouth, and I'd have to sell a couple of things to buy some more material for something else. She built up this business empire all around the world, on her own terms, you know, with a particularly kind of wacky, cool brand. You know, with Vivian stuff, you couldn't just wear one or two bits from it. You had to wear the whole kit and caboozle, otherwise it don't work. Yeah, so there you go. But I was lucky enough, not long before I came away to America, to be invited and go to Vivian's memorial at Southwark Cathedral. And just about everybody, but everybody from the whole fashion world was there. Quite an eye-opener how well-respected she was. And, and musicians as well. I mean, Chrissy Hines sang a song. She sang Raining in My Heart. She was good friends with her and got choked up halfway through. She was doing it with the guitarist, James Wilburn. And then um, Nick Cave played the piano and sang a fantastic song. All for Vivian. We'd much rather still have her around. We see her as an icon. I have read that you were not a fan of the way you were portrayed in Pistol. No, I was a bit disappointed with it, really. I thought it was important they went ahead that Steve, who formed the band, got to tell his story. But the whole bit of me leaving, I left. It says I was sacked. I'm not happy about it. And I was disappointed because I had quite a lot of conversations with Danny Boyle about it before I am. And I was ignored. So I'm not happy with him. Again, like this kind of time last year, at some red carpet event in Hollywood proper. And he knows exactly what I think about it. Did you feel that the portrayal of some of the other characters, like Vivian, did you feel that they were portrayed? I, I think the girl who plays Vivian, I think she got her accent spot on. Yeah, I think she plays quite... I think the guy who played Malcolm was very good, that whole court scene. He spoke exactly the way Malcolm could speak when he put his mind to it. I wasn't in the courtroom that day, but he just kind of... He got Malcolm's part, I think. And I think well, the guy who played me was all right, but I think the script let him down. So... Yeah, but something like that, I think people are always going to moan. I don't think Paul's particularly happy about his character. What what are you going to do? You did write your own biography. I did write my own biography, yeah. Yeah. It's been out and it's still available on Amazon. I was a teenage sex pistol, and I think it was the first person to write that. I wrote it because I thought I'd never have to go on about the sex pistols in my life ever again. (laughs) <laughs> which was where my head was at 20 years ago. But of course, when you put a book out, people always ask you why you wrote it. And then, you, again, you're back to square one again. So didn't think yeah. that through either. <laughs> and you've put out a, a number of albums. Cooking Vinyl is going to reissue again. So that's wonderful. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm pleased about that. Yeah, I feel I'm on a bit of a upward gradient now. It's kind of cool. You know, you write songs, you want to get them out. They're better than sitting in the, t- in the drawer. I think on all my albums, I've got some pretty good songs. Maybe they weren't what was going on at the time. But I think now, I think people are getting hit. I'm not bad, really, you know. (laughs) 
something to say and to have the last couple of albums out, which are kind of cool. I mean, the last album gets some great players and mates. Slim Jim Phantom's the drummer on most of the last album. Good to go. El Slick is on it. It's sort of my slightly Americana kind of album. And then this new one, El's on it and Clem's on a couple of tracks and some great players. So, yeah, I'm feeling good about it, really. Hi, so and so then what is the set list going to look like when you're doing your shows? Well, I always say when I do a gig, it's a bit like a wedding that the bride should wear something old, something new, something borrowed and something a little and something blue. So I always play something old, something new. It's quite a few new ones from new records. Something a little bit bluesy and something borrows a cover version or two that's kind of a mean something to me. So that's not a bad yardstick for a gig and you know, I play all around the world and I do, I don't go down pretty good. So now with a band with Gilby and Clam and Steve and people getting up, I think it's going to be a good night. When you go back to the UK after the show at the Roxy, you have a few shows there too? Yeah, I've got quite a lot on when I get back. The album comes out. I've got maybe half a dozen shows booked in now. I've got a load of in-stores to do and I'm you know, just me and my acoustic, which I like doing, and I've done that all around the world. Do you know what? I played at the Montreux Jazz Festival maybe a year or two before lockdown, and I went to play, and I looked to see who else was on, and it's not really a jazz festival. It's like an all-that-jazz kind of festival. I did a show, and I had a good crowd there, but after the show, I went out, and there was a couple of older blokes there, and they wanted me to sign a couple of things. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll sign them for you. I said, who else have you seen while we're here? And they said they'd seen Rockin' in the Free World. Okay, Neil Young? Neil Young. And I said, well, how can you see Neil Young? Because he was playing the same time as me because I wanted to see him myself. And they said, oh, we went for two numbers and we'd much rather see you. So. <laughs> oh. Testimonial. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy being the front man? I see, you know, you know, you watch the Sex Pistols, you're in the back. You see the rich kids, you were in the back, and now all of a sudden, boom, you're front and center. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for a while, and it's something that you learn to do. And I, I actually doing a solo show by yourself, just you and a guitar, is scary, but that's a good reason to not not do it, but to do it because it puts hairs on your chest, and you kind of learn <laughs> your trade of presenting things. You know, somebody can be a fantastic singer, which I don't claim to be, but nobody's going to mean the songs more than the bloke what wrote the words. Me. So, there you go. It's, it's kind of weird, though. You know, the world is a big place, and you're trying to put your record out here, there, and, and everywhere. And although Cook and Vinyl are cool, they're not the biggest record labour in the world, so I have to tie it in. You know, there's a, a certain kind of budgetary con constraints to take into account. But, you know, there you go. Something to do. It's never that much on the tally. Yeah, so go and do show. <laughs> That's nice. What are you enjoying about playing with Blondie? Oh, I think they got a fantastic canon of re repertoire. They're cool. They're all good players. I've been friends with Clem for a long, long time. We've done loads of sort of projects, some good, some a bit airbrained, but we've done stuff over many years together. We play well with each other. I love playing bass when somebody else is singing. When I do my shows, I play rhythm guitar, but that's what I started out on. I think there's a corner to Blondie somehow. They're kind of got that pop rock, slightly punk thing down, but they've always had quite a cool arty edge somehow. And then they, and, and they've never really been constrained by what genre they're supposed to be. And I'm in the 80s, and they started doing more kind of disco stuff. And I'm actually quite good at octaves on bass. <laughs> I get to show that off. <laughs> 
Is there a song that you look forward to every show? They're all pretty good, really. <laughs> when, when Dave's trying to get you get trying to get some specific info from I want, Glenn. I, I want to know feel the, it. I want to know the bass head. Like, okay, here's where here's where Glenn gets to shine. Here, here's oh, I, I get to shine in Rapture, and there's, it takes it down, and I do my bit, and I do it. But sometimes Debbie comes up to me on stage, and she goes, "Have you finished yet?" <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> and she's a great singer. When I started rehearsing with them. You know, it's, it's quite well equipped with a team of people who are doing it. And the, the sound guy said, all right, Glenn, everything kind of cool? Can you hear everything? This is in the rehearsal room. I said, well, I could do with Debbie a bit louder, please. And he said, well, it's pretty loud. I said, I know, but I like her voice. Just turn up. I like listening. <laughs> uh, I was at the Cruel World Fest last year. And oh, that, was, okay. that was cool, yeah. It was really cool. And, I, yeah, I, I was shocked. Like, that looks like Clint Madlock. I had no idea. And so it was it was kind of a, a nice little thrill to, to see. Yeah, and it was all very last minute when I got the, the call from Clem to do it. So, yeah, it's all part of life's rich pageant. You're so uh, blasé about this, but you've played with everybody. You've played with Midger, you played with Mike Peters. Iggy okay. Pop. <laughs> Can we mention Iggy Pop? What's... <laughs> I mentioned Iggy, yeah, I played with him a long time ago. In fact, the first time I came to America and went to New York, I was playing with Iggy at the age of 23, and um, we headlined the Palladium in New York on Halloween, and the Cramp supported us, which is not a bad induction into coming to America for the first time. Yeah, And in fact, we played in Los Angeles on that tour, and backstage there was both Goldie Hawn and Cher. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know, I've arrived. Welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, who's going to be backstage at uh, at this show at uh, at the end of April? We're going to. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. When Maybe we, we can get Goldie Hawn and Cher back. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> By the way, I mean, you got along with Sid. You you played a show with Sid Vicious, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. Just, just only a, one though, so you can read into that what you like. <laughs> well, got it. <laughs> Sid was kind of indisposed uh, after that last show. He, I think he got uh, kind of busy with other uh, nefarious events. Yeah. Oh, actually, that was a fun show that we did a one-off for. In fact, I think that's where I met the guys from Blondie for the first time. Because what I did like about Blondie back then was that you go and see a band or something. Then bands when they're on. You know, if they're in your own, if you're in your own town, you might do a gig and then you go home and just get on what you do with your mates. But if you're in a different country, you're a bit of a fish out of water. And there was a gig on, and they weren't playing that night. You'd see them out and about en masse as Blondie, and I'm pretty sure that's where I met Clem for the first time. They all came to see um, the Vicious White Kids gig we did, which is that one off. Amazing. Did you ever see Sid sober? What was your impression of Sid? Yeah, he was my neighbour and. Um, where I live, still live in London, and I bump into him, and that's how we got to do the show. You know, we were sitting in a pub together. You know, the idea came up, and we did it. And you see him out and about, but he was—I just always thought he was a likable nitwit, to be honest. And uh, Nancy was not the best background singer, is what I heard. I don't know. We turned her mic off. I don't know what she sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> so that was true. Okay, very, very good. <laughs> well, have a great couple of weeks. You got some fun times in LA. I'm just catching up with some old chums, really. Yeah. You know, that's what I've been, I've been rehearsing, doing a lot of stuff like this. Did go to Malibu at the weekend, which is kind of cool. Bumped into Frankie Infante in Fred Siegel's in Malibu <laughs> Mal, as you do. It's kind of fun. Everybody's got to be somewhere. Do you know what I did like to see? And every time I'm here, I like, I like to go out to the coast, Malibu, and see the pelicans. And that's what I did. 
<laughs> That's great. Very peaceful. Very peaceful. I like that. And I'm going to have to get on now because I've got to get to rehearsal. So, but it's been great chatting to you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. This was really wonderful. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for doing oh, this. Are you guys going to come to the show? Yes, for sure. Yes. You better. All right, then. All right. We'll see you there. Cheers. See ya. So, Holly, I think that went better than the Bill Grundy interview, don't you think? <laughs> I think it did. Uh, hopefully, Glenn had at least as much fun as he did talking to Bill Grundy, but yeah, that was a lot of fun, and what a total treat. So, he's a busy guy, and that's great. I love that what you chose as your vocation when you were 18 years old is you're still doing it and still thriving at it. And his new record, Consequences Coming, definitely worth checking out. I've just uh, watched the video for Head on a Stick, and it's wonderful just to see him up front and singing just rocking out this this new album is really exciting to hear and the music kicks ass don't you think i think the music kicks ass and he's not i love hearing what's on his mind after you listen to this podcast and after you listen to glenn's new record check out what difference does it make on our youtube channel where would they find that holly you will find us at what difference does it make podcast on youtube and wddim podcast on other social media and we will put clips up when we go to the show on the 29th if you want to see Glenn in action. Oh, what a great idea. Okay, let's wrap this up then so you can get to doing those other things that we've told you to do. Don't forget to visit us at WDDIMpodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter. New episodes every Friday, so subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, please. And thank you. And until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.